You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Hang out with a bunch of gay guys. Say on a deck with booze in the summer. And you'll almost always hear jokes about how we were all seduced into homosexuality, how we all spend every weekend in bathhouses taking loads and slings, how we're all attracted to boys. I said there were always jokes. I didn't say the jokes were always funny. And you'll hear stuff, jokes, comments, quotes from guys who identify with tragic women, from Maria of Romania to Judy Garland to Britney Spears. It's a long-running theme. A lot of the jokes gay men tell each other about each other on decks with drinks in our hands. Again, not all of them funny. A lot of those jokes are about the lies we've been told or we were told about ourselves, particularly the lies we were told growing up, lies we were told by our parents, by our peers, by our preachers and teachers, lies we were told over and over again about being gay long before most of us realized that we were ourselves gay. And that's a big problem in our lives because we internalize those lies that we're told about ourselves long before we realize we're gay. And then we have to unlearn all those lies. We have to throw them all up. And it's not an easy process, especially when you have to help your family unlearn the lies they were telling you, the lies they told you about you, the lies they were told and believed. To make it to one of those decks filled with gay men, which isn't my scene because I'm an introvert and I'm not a drinker or a swimsuit person, but I've been on enough of those decks to know what they're like. To make it to one of those decks, you've got to come out. And to come out, you have to accept yourself. And to accept yourself, you have to really deprogram yourself. You have to unlearn those lies that you were told. And after you're done, after you've done the hard work of de-internalizing all of that shit you're left with, well... A certain amount of anger, anger about having been told those lies in the first place, lies about you, lies that could have destroyed you, lies that you know have destroyed other gay men. And what do you do with that anger? Well, a lot of us make jokes. And one common way we joke about the lies we're told is to pretend they're true, to send them up by inhabiting them, by exaggerating them, by really leaning into them to show just how ridiculous and untrue they are which is why the guy who didn't lose his virginity until four years after he came out will joke about having been seduced into the quote-unquote homosexual lifestyle, which is why the guy who is exclusively attracted to older, heavier, hairier dudes will joke about high school wrestling teams, which is why the guy in a monogamous relationship will joke about having taken loads all weekend in a sling in a bathhouse. But the anger that inspires most gay men to make these sorts of jokes, it inspires others to make art. Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin. That is art, and it is angry. If you haven't read it, you should. You should read all of Baldwin. And you should watch, if you haven't already, Call Me By Your Name, the new song and video by singer and songwriter Lil Nas X. It's an extremely catchy tune, a beautifully art-directed video, and an extremely angry work of queer art. Lil Nas, whose breakout hit was the double Grammy-winning Old Town Road, has followed that up with something you've got to see it to believe it. And I'm guessing you've already seen it. Tens of millions of people have. Or maybe 
I should say you've got to see it to disbelieve it because the video is really about a lie Lil Nas was told, a lie that so many of us were told about being gay when we were growing up to be gay. Among the worst, if not actually the worst lie that we're told is that we're going to hell, that God hates us and that homosexuality is the work of the devil and that gay people are possessed by demons. You don't have to take my word for Lil Nas's new song and video being inspired by that anger, anger at being told these lies. I spent my entire teen years hating myself because of the shit y'all preached would happen to me because I was gay, Lil Nas wrote in a post on social media. So I hope you are mad after watching his new video. I hope you stay mad. Feel the same anger you teach us to have towards ourselves. Lil Nas leans into it. You say I'm going to hell? Okay, I'll go to hell. And I'll give Satan a fucking lap dance. I'll ride a stripper pole down to hell in a pair of high-heeled boots. You say I'm possessed by demons? Fuck that. I'm going to kill Satan and take his motherfucking throne. A demon? I'm going to be the demon. Happy now? It's so over the top. It's camp. Bright and shiny and brave and so, so angry. And it does what so much gay humor does, what so much queer humor does. It inhabits and exaggerates the lies that are told about us, lies that are told to us, and by doing so, explodes them. If this is what you think, and this is what you said, let's take a look at it. This is what it would look like. You can't still think this. And if you don't like looking at this, the video says, if you don't like videos like this existing, then maybe you should stop telling the fucking lies that made a video, a a song, a work of art like this, not just possible, but absolutely necessary. In a development I'd like to think is related, according to new poll, church attendance in the U.S. down to an all-time low. Fewer than 50% of Americans are members of a church now, just 47% compared to 70% in 1999. That number was just 76% in 1950, so it's been pretty stable church membership for a long time. But lately? Yeah, no. Turns out you can only rape so many children. Turns out you can only fleece so many members of your own flock. Turns out you can only live in so many obscene mega mansions and own so many private jets and only buy so many pairs of $5,000 sneakers and only watch your wife fuck only so many pool boys. And you can only tell so many lies about queer people. You can only tell so many lies about gay, lesbian, bi, and trans people to the straight members of our families who have apologized to us for believing and repeating your lies. You can only do that for so long, all that, before people start to get sick of your fucking bullshit and walk the fuck away. And some of the folks who walk away, who see through your bullshit, who unlearn those lies, are going to tell jokes. And some, some are going to make art. Art that makes your lies look as ridiculous as they are. Art that opens more people's eyes to those lies and results in more people walking the fuck away from your churches. All right, coming up this week on the micro and the magnum editions of the Savage Lovecast, comedian, producer, Actor Nick Kroll is here. He's with us for a little bit on the micro-free edition of the Savage Lovecast. And all of Nick Kroll taking questions, talking about the show, can be found on the Magnum Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. All that coming up right now. Hi, Dan. I have a COVID success story that I wanted to share. So my partner and I have been together for three years after being friends for five. 
and throughout our friendship, we had much sexual tension. So when we were both finally single and could come together, uh, the sex was amazing and mind-blowing. And he then promptly got a job that was super stressful and tanked his libido. And it made our relationship crazy stressful until just as quarantine started. And we got our shit together and figured out what we were doing. And literally the same month that COVID started, we figured everything out. So since then, for the past year, we've been having great sex that makes both of us happy. And the other week, we decided that we were going to try having sex on acid, which neither of us had ever done before. So I took the acid, started listening to some good music, got naked, and we're cuddling in bed, and just had the most mind-blowing fucking sex of either of our lives. Like, getting your pussy eaten while high on acid is goddamn life-changing. It was unbelievable we had the most relationship affirming conversation afterwards while we both were still naked and rolling around and it was just so wonderful and since then we've just unlocked this playful nature in our relationship that I feel was hidden from us for so long we're we're flirtier with each other and sexier with each other and just in general just more sexual with each other for anyone out there who likes getting their pussy and and is open to a psychedelic experience i would highly 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 recommend getting your pussy eaten on acid acid individual results may vary but you've convinced me caller i am totally going to go out there and get my pussy eaten on acid acid is one of those things moderation in all things including moderation but especially with something like acid, if you want to read more about drugs and love and sex and romance and relationships and how there's an interplay there and perhaps a benefit, I would recommend Love Drugs by Brian Earp and Julian Savalescu, Savage Lovecast guest Brian Earp. But thank you, caller. Thank you for sharing your success story. If you want us to open next week's Lovecast with your success story, give us a call, 206-302-2064, and we might play your success story before we get to other people's problems at the top of next week's show. Hi, Dan. I'm a 40-something years old woman living in California. So I've gone on many dates. And the question I have is, when is it an appropriate time to discuss your expectations of an open relationship uh, when you just meet someone, especially, you know, on a, on a, on apps. So the first date is on Zoom frequently recently, actually only. <laughs> and I've been on so many dates when a person seeing what just laid out in much detail and, uh, you know, like the f- what exactly they want, how open, da 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 da, and compersion and everything. And I mean, on my profile, you can see that I'm open to. Uh, non-monogamy, especially OkCupid, has it very clear. So it's not new information that we're discovering, and there's probably, you know, probably chatted. But I get very bored and kind of turned off by that being a big subject on the first date, you know, on Zoom, for instance, also. Because I feel like it's too early. It's too early. I don't know if I'm going to even have a second date with you. So why are we talking about such interesting subject. And I also just don't feel that we have that rapport yet. I feel it's too, too early. What do you think, Dan? Am I wrong? 
by putting on your profile that you're open to non-monogamy, interested in perhaps open relationships, you're raising the subject of open relationships and non-monogamy conversion first and opening the door to that conversation. And you're going to attract attention from people who are interested in that. And maybe that first, you know, when people who are into non-monogamy or open to an open relationship or interested in polyamorous relationships, date people who are normies, date people who don't want any of those things or don't indicate that they want any of those things. Openness, the kind of relationship model that they would prefer, becomes this subject they have to tap dance around and maybe tiptoe up to. And so you're probably just attracting a lot of people who are excited to be talking to someone who's on the same page with them about this thing, about a big important thing that you two have in common. And so I can understand why some of the people that you're going on these first internet dates with are a little maybe excited uh, about this topic because if they're out there dating a lot of people and meeting a lot of people and they're not selecting exclusively for people who are open to open relationships, you may be a rare first date or date that they ever get to talk about this at all with ever. And maybe they're a little bit too excited about it. Seems to me that there's a simple corrective here, which is not to take it off your profile, is just when the person raises the subject, first goes there, gets excited to be talking with somebody who's open to talking about this, say, hey, we can talk about relationship models down the road. Let's just figure out if we want to have a relationship at all. And that means getting to know each other. And this is a given. I'm into open to open relationships. You're open to open to relationships. What else are you into or open to? What else are you about besides that? That's not enough to build a relationship around or establish that we have the kind of rapport required or that we would both require, mutually required, for us to continue to date. And at that point, we can talk about what kind of relationship we're going to be in, what model, and since we both know we're open to open, we don't have to talk about that anymore. Tell me what you thought of WandaVision. After you've said that, if they keep going to it, if they keep bringing it back, well, then they've exposed themselves to you as someone who isn't listening, doesn't listen, doesn't take in how you feel or what you want, isn't interested in your opinions or desires in establishing the relationship, much less shaping the relationship. And then you can end it. But at least give the person that you're having that first online date with who goes there too quickly the chance of backing the fuck up and shifting to some other topic to establish mutual interest and desire. Hi, Dan. This is Matt from Temple, Texas. So I have a friend who has a transgendered son, female to male, and she's been having a lot of difficulty dating because her uh, his girlfriends, uh, when they see the transition scars, they run away. When is the right time for a trans person to tell them that they're trans? Should they be looking at straight people or bisexual people or gay people? I can't imagine your friend's son is confiding in you about his dating life and the challenges. That means, or I'm going to assume, that your friend's son is confiding in their parent and their parent, his parent, his mom, is confiding in you. And isn't that nice that this trans kid has supportive friends and family? I'm concerned that this trans kid, this trans boy, is in perhaps Temple, Texas with y'all. Not that Temple, Texas isn't a lovely place. Not that there aren't good and decent 
and trans supportive people in Temple, Texas. You, caller, are proof that there are. But the bigger the city, the more progressive the city, the more people in that city who are trans, the more people in that city who are open to dating trans people, the more options your friend's son will have. And so uh, maybe your friend's son already lives in Seattle or Portland or somewhere where there's a large trans community and a large community of cis people who embrace trans people and welcome trans people and date trans people and partner with trans people. Not that trans people also can't partner with each other. They can and they do. But if this kid is still in Temple, Texas, I think the long-term plan has to be to get the fuck out of Temple, Texas. And the question you ask on this kid's behalf when should he tell people that he's trans speaking to my trans friends? And when you see trans people online being fully themselves and fully out online, I think the current best advice is to be open about being trans out of the gate. That might mean that some of the girls your friend's son is interested in won't want to date him, won't be open to dating him. That spares him the trouble and drama and heartache of having to, confess that he's trans at some point, come out about being trans and then be rejected for being trans. What he wants to do is let go of that scarcity mindset that if I'm open about being trans, no one's going to want to date me and embrace the abundance mindset, the abundance reality of right now in that there are plenty of people out there, a lot of people out there, cis people who are open to dating trans guys. And those are the people whose attentions he should want to attract. Now, maybe it's not safe if this kid lives in Temple, Texas, for him to be out about being trans. And that changes things. So he may want to wait and get to know somebody that he's interested in romantically and get to a place where he feels he can really trust that person, whether or not that person wants to continue on in the relationship after the big reveal, but at least trust that that person isn't going to run around town maliciously gossiping about him and perhaps putting his life in danger. And that may be a valid strategy, dating and romance strategy, for right now. He can weed out the women that he meets who aren't interested in him as a trans guy after going on a few dates and then coming out to them as trans. I think it would be in his best interest long term to get to a bigger city, to get to a place where he's going to feel safer being out about being trans. And then that'll weed out the women who aren't interested in him because he's trans before he goes on that first date, before they have a chance to break his heart. And it'll attract women who are open to dating trans guys, might attract some women who are going to fetishize trans guys. You can pick through those people. Sometimes people can fetishize or objectify someone, but also recognize and embrace and honor and respect their full humanity. And that's kind of a Yahtzee, I think, but not everybody would agree with me on that. So good that your friend's son has other adults around him in his life who are currently working on using his correct pronouns and good for you for self-correcting a couple of times there. And my advice for him would be to think about getting to a bigger city, a bigger city, somewhere bigger and more welcoming with more options romantically and socially for trans people than Temple, Texas. Hey, Dan. Hey, I'm a 32-year-old cis hetero dude calling in from Austin, Texas, and I could use your advice. It's occurred to me that maybe I'm just not that good at dating. <laughs> I actually really like monogamy, and I think I've always been a good boyfriend in the past. And I'm kind of just getting back into the dating game after two years. But the actual process of 
talking with new people, using the apps, doing FaceTime dates, meeting up in real life, it isn't always that fun. Or, you know, it can be fun until it doesn't work out over and over and over again. And I feel like this is just compounded by the fact that my overall social skills have kind of like degraded over the last year of working from home and not getting out that much. So I thought I would call you because I bet a lot of other people are feeling that too. So how can we make first dates fun and light and potentially lead to something more? Your social skills have degraded over the last year. You haven't been getting out much, working at home. You have so much in common with so many women out there who may be feeling exactly the same way. I would, if I were you, lead with that on your online dating profiles, on Tinder. Social skills, dating skills, rusty, need practice. That's kind of charming and truthful. And I think a lot of people out there would relate to that and might want to go on a few practice first dates with you. And maybe if you labeled them practice first dates, the stakes wouldn't seem so high. If you're this crushed after a first date or a brand new relationship, a new girlfriend, boyfriend thing doesn't work out over the long run, it seems to me you're investing too much in it or attaching too much meaning and importance to a relationship early on and then too much meaning and significance to those new relationships for the most part not working out. Every relationship you're ever going to be in is going to fail until one doesn't. You don't know which one that is until you're in it, which means to find that one that isn't going to quote unquote fail, you have to risk getting into new relationships. And that's how that relationship, the one that works out for the long term, where one of you lands in the funeral home at the end and you win, you got to get in them. You got to go on those first dates. So that's just an opportunity cost. That's a you know, the, the real price of admission that you have to pay or the very first price of admission that you're going to have to pay to be in relationships. There's a lot of people out there who just as you feel your social skills have degraded, you haven't been getting out much, you've been working at home. A lot of people out there who feel the same way about that churn. They find it draining and enervating to make that emotional investment in someone, to get to know someone and then for it not to work out. And I think it helps if you look at that process of that investment of time and energy, even if it doesn't work out with this person that you just invested that time and energy, you're honing, you're, you're using that muscle, that investment of time and energy muscle, and you're getting practice at it. So then when a person comes along that you could make a long-term commitment to, who would like to make a long-term commitment to you, you have the skills, your muscles are, are, are primed and ready to go and you can do that thing, which means all those relationships that didn't work out, all those first dates that didn't lead to second or third dates or two, three-month relationships that didn't lead to 50, 60-year relationships, they served a purpose. They set you up for success later. If you exit those relationships, you know, learning the lessons, scrutinizing your own behaviors, making sure you're not shitting the bed in some way that you're not aware of uh, and making the same mistakes over and over and over again that are costing you relationships. If you learn the lessons from the ones that don't work out and exercise those muscles around you know, making an emotional investment and an investment of time, you set yourself up for success long-term. But man, there's no way to avoid that early part of the process, including the failures that are built in and that are not without meaning or value. They are. 
So it might help if you looked at them that way. And I'm using, of course, fail and failure in my response to you in quotes. I don't think a relationship that ends with both people getting out of it alive, whether that relationship was two dates or 20 years, was necessarily a failure. If people learned and grew on those two dates or in that 20 years and then moved on and were better partners for their next partner or better just for themselves alone going forward, the relationship was a success. Hi, Dan. My name is Benji, and I'm a gay male, 24-year-old from the Pacific Northwest. I met this guy on Sniffies, which is sort of like Grinder, and we initially met up for a hookup. The chemistry was great, so we exchanged numbers, and one thing led to another, and it basically led to me spending about two weeks staying over at this guy's house, going out for dinners, getting dinners at home, playing video games, just lounging around. I would basically sleep over, come home, We'd text each other, say we miss each other, and I would drive back to his place. And this sort of went on for two weeks. After that, I got to know him a little bit more. He loves to hook up. He loves to, you know, have multiple guys during the week, which is totally fine by me. I kind of find it hot. But now that we're getting to know each other a little bit more, I'm sort of lost at where I want things to go. I really want to date him. And I did actually invite him out to a first date. I don't want it to be memorable. So... We flew down to Southern California. We got a hotel. We had a grand time, and then we flew back up. But now I'm not sure where to go or how to go about things. I definitely want to date him, and I think he's interested, obviously. I mean, we have this great chemistry. But he's also mentioned a couple of times a few things that he doesn't usually date in people. For example, he doesn't date people that are shorter, which I am by two inches. He doesn't date people that are younger. I'm 24. He's 27. And he doesn't typically date people that have never been in a relationship, which I haven't, but mainly because of situations like this where I'm not really granted the opportunity to move past sort of dating, you know, like I'm good enough for a date or a fuck, but I'm never really good enough to take it to that next stage. So I guess my question is, how do I sort of move past it? I don't want to waste my time or his time if this isn't really going to lead anywhere, but I'm not entirely sure how to progress things. I mean, we didn't have the most typical start to things. I think we started very, very hardcore, and obviously there was infatuation involved. But how do I now differentiate between like actual chemistry and this potentially leading somewhere? That was one hell of a first date in the middle of a pandemic, flying to California for a couple of days, getting a hotel room. Man, as first dates go... That was a bungee jump. Of course, it came after you spent two weeks with the guy already at his apartment, having sex, lounging around, playing video games, getting to know him. So I don't think it was a crazy irrational sort of first date, but as first dates go, wow, big one. So what do you do? This guy has told you that doesn't usually date guys like you, guys who are shorter, guys who are younger, guys who haven't already been in relationships. And there you are, shorter than he is, younger than he is, and not as experienced as he is and never having been in a relationship before. But you are open to being with him. And so what do you do? How do you progress? Well, you can only make progress together. The relationship can only progress if he would like to pursue it with you, do it together, enter into a relationship or date you. And I'm a little concerned, not concerned. It, it all depends on what he meant by that. Maybe it's true that he has an arbitrary rule about how tall a guy has to be to ride this ride. Maybe it's true that he's always seen himself with guys who were older than he is. And maybe it's true that he's always preferred for some reason, guys who have some experience 
having had relationships already. And he's looking at you and sharing these facts with you because he's processing, because he's thinking out loud, because he's looking at you and wanting to be with you and wanting to date you and, and just throwing out there, I guess, to be transparent or cruel, just throwing out there all the disqualifiers that he can see or that he's aware of. All the things that would typically lead him to scratch you off the list of potential boyfriends, and yet he's considering it. So it all depends on what he meant when he said those things. Was he setting you up for the letting you down easy that's coming? Or was he just, because he's a really honest guy, letting you know that he has some doubts or reservations, but you know he got on that plane with you and went to California with you. He's open to continuing to see you even though you're not his usual type. But maybe you bring so much else to the table that you're not disqualified by being shorter, younger, and less experienced than most of the guys he would usually consider for the role of boyfriend. You only have half the information. You only have what you know. And what you know is that you're open to seeing this guy despite these things. At some point, he's going to let you know whether he's open to seeing you despite these typical disqualifiers for him. So how do you progress? You continue to see him. Will you be together forever? I don't know. I think there's a 50-50 chance here that he's just a talker and just said the things out loud that most people in his position, if they were interested in someone romantically, would elide or not say out loud. And a 50% chance that he said these things to you because he doesn't want you to feel too bad when he ends it. Not saying he's going to, but he might. You might. You might end it. You might continue to date him and realize that X, Y, and Z about him are disqualifiers. So continue to see him so long as he'll see you and you'll get your answer in time. Hey, Dan. So I have a question about sex during covid You've uh, frequently reminded listeners that now is not the time to be fucking strangers. So my question is, when, Dan, when can we start having sex again? The thing is, I'm a body worker. I have a massage studio in my home where I provide erotic massage. And my massage can get pretty involved, pretty intimate. I just, I love sucking face with clients. But for the past year... I have seen exactly one client, Dan, one. I'm going nuts. So my question is, after I get vaccinated, is it okay for me to see clients again? I'm not asking, is it okay for them? They're all adults. They can make their own decisions. But is it okay for me? Once I've been vaccinated, can I start seeing clients again? What's your opinion, Dan? When can we start having sex? More than a year ago, we had on the show Dr. Dimitri Daskalakis from the New York Department of Health. And his advice for having sex during the pandemic was to suck ass, not face. You can see clients. You can give massages. There is risk. You can minimize that risk by your clients wearing masks and by you wearing masks. It's the face-to-face. -face, it's the breathing on each other. It's the air droplets that presented the risk for COVID-19 transmission. So that's why a lot of the fun and kinky sex advice out there for people who are going to have sex around reducing risk, around harm reduction, not harm, not risk elimination, just risk reduction here was to 
use glory holes to get creative, to wear masks during sex, to eat ass, not suck face. So there's nothing about right now, even in your unvaccinated state, that would prevent you from making an informed choice based on the risk assessment that you can make personally and your clients can do the same, make an informed choice based on their awareness of the risks. Once you're vaccinated, it's much safer for you to see clients. A vaccinated person, according to the best medical authorities at the moment, can still get infected, can still get COVID-19. The infection will be less severe, less debilitating, less likely to result in hospitalization or death, but still infected and potentially infectious. So your clients, if they haven't been vaccinated, are taking a risk that you, as a vaccinated person, are taking as greater risk. If a client comes in who's got COVID-19 and you're vaccinated and you don't, you could still get it. You just probably aren't going to die from it. And if you get it and you're seeing a bunch of clients, you could pass it along. Those are the risks you need to take into account while you're making your choices. Seems to me that it would be reasonable for you to see your clients and provide the services that you provide, erotic massage, and skip the face-sucking part. Suck something else. Keep the faces covered. Keep your mask on. Let them keep their mask on. It is safe, we've been told by the CDC, for people who are vaccinated to get together in small groups. There is no smaller group than two people alone in a room together with one giving the other a massage. So if you're vaccinated and your clients are vaccinated, go for it. But until you're vaccinated and until you know that your clients or all your clients are vaccinated, there are risks. You get to decide for yourself as an adult what risks you're willing to run. The only caveat, the only complication to that usual, the risks are mine calculus for us during this pandemic is that if you get infected because you took risks and then you're around other people who are in your pod who are trying to be safe, your the risks you took could wind up endangering them. And so you have to factor that in as well. Do you live with anybody? Are you taking care of any elders? Do you live in a, a home with more than one person? Whatever risks you're taking in the massage studio are their risks too. And as a moral agent, you have to factor that in when you're making your own judgments about the risks you're willing to take because you're not just in this pandemic taking them for yourself. Hey, Dan, this is a longtime cis male listener in the rural South. been with my girlfriend for about uh, six months now. And from the get-go, like first time we had sex, uh, we had really great chemistry. It was good. It was amazing. And for a few months, we kind of were on the verge of breaking up because both of us weren't sure about getting serious. Because since then, it's been more serious. We've both gotten to the point where we say we love each other. And the sex had been really amazing until um, a few weeks ago. And, you know, I, I felt like things were, were really good for, uh, for both of us. Had been, you know, we've been communicating, like we've been trying new things, things gone really well and then it kind of came out really suddenly that my my girlfriend wasn't enjoying it she you know kind of accused me of being selfish and not thinking about her when I'm always like very you know like very much into uh, foreplay and, and those sorts of things and always trying to uh, you know make sure she comes and, and you know it's you know don't consider myself bad at sex you know haven't had that uh, that happen so 
you know, it's a bit of a blow of confidence, but, you know, I listened to her and I was like, what can I do? You know, how can I incorporate more things or, or different attitudes, like better approaches to that that are going to work for you that make you feel good and like you're getting what you want in that aspect of our relationship and feeling fulfilled. And, you know, so we talked about some things I've been you know, very actively trying to incorporate those things. And, you know, the relationship has been a little awkward since then, too, because there were other things that kind of came out in terms of, you know, ways that she thought that I should be different and things she thought should be different in the relationship. But they're still kind of weird. And I'm, I guess what I'm wondering is, you know, I feel like I've been a very receptive partner. I've been listening. I've been trying to do everything. Um, at what point is this something that I need to be like, hey, we need to talk about what might be going on with you because right now we've been just focusing it on, on it as me as the sort of problem or contributing factor. I guess also she seems to put a lot of stock in, in sex as like you know, the barometer for the relationship and intimacy and seems to be kind of like maybe reserved now, maybe maybe pulling back. And I'm also wondering, I guess, in the general sense, like how you know, how much should we hang on sex when there are lots of other good aspects of the relationship? We've talked a lot about how women are socialized to defer to men. And sometimes women will have sex with a man that they don't really want to have sex with because they don't feel empowered to say no, or they feel like it would be too dangerous to say no. And so they appear to be consenting, or they may even give unenthusiastic consent and go along and have sex that they didn't enjoy. And it's not always the case that an experience like that is a one-off. It is sometimes the case that a woman has a sexual experience like that, like uh, agrees to sex or has sex with somebody they kind of want to have sex with, don't advocate for themselves in the moment, go along with whatever the guy wants or what the guy is doing, and the guy may think he's doing what she wants and is being attentive to her and, and her pleasure, but be way off and it's not working for her, but she doesn't say anything because she's been socialized to defer to men, particularly around sex and sexual activity. And if that's a one-off, if it's a one-and-done and she gets away from the dude, that can be an unhappy, unpleasant memory. But it is sometimes the case that a person will have that kind of displeasing, dispiriting sex in the context of a new relationship and then keep having that sex, not feel like they can tap the kind that they've been having sex with on the shoulder for three months and say, everything we've been doing up to now isn't working for me. And they just go along and go along until they snap. And then it all comes out at once. I haven't enjoyed any of this. That may be what's happened here. Your girlfriend may at six months reached a breaking point where she didn't know how to say it after the first time you guys fucked or the 12th time you guys fucked. But after the 50th time you guys fucked, it all came pouring out like some image came to her head of a lifetime of going through the motions with you. And she dumped this on you all at once. So what do you do? Well, you back way the fuck up. You ask for a lot of input. You ask for instruction. And it may be the case that the blow to your ego, the blow to anyone's ego, not just a man's ego in a situation like this is too great for the sexual relationship to recover. Like one of the things we want in bed is a, partner with some sexual self-confidence and having sex that you hated with somebody for a year or six months and then telling them can so utterly destroy their sexual self-confidence with you as a partner that there's no recovering. 
feedback you could have given, you know, the first or second or third time you had sex that could have been folded into the relationship and resulted in you having better sex with that person and growing the good sex that you started to have with that person, that can work early on. Waiting six months, a year, 10 years, as some people do, to give that kind of feedback, that can be really difficult to come back from, if indeed your girlfriend's even interested in coming back from this. It's not just the sex that she says hasn't been working for her in this relationship. There are all these other issues that you don't go into, which makes me think that you're prioritizing sex in this relationship over other issues since you don't unpack those for us in your call that also aren't working for her. This may be her trying to deflect her way out of the relationship. This may be her letting you know that she is unhappy, not just with the sex, but also with the interpersonal whatever else that isn't working for her to exit the relationship. This could be the beginning of the end. Does all of this mean you're an inattentive, shitty lover who's going to drive people away with your dick? Not necessarily. The foreplay, your moves, everything that you did with her that wasn't working for her, we don't know the reason it wasn't working for her. Maybe she likes less aggressive. Maybe she felt pressured to have orgasms at times when she didn't want to have an orgasm and felt pressured to perform for you. There's all sorts of communication around sex that hasn't been happening in this relationship. And I can only speculate as to what the issue was for her. But you not working for one person doesn't mean that whatever you were doing wouldn't work for someone else. There might be a woman out there who your style of foreplay is exactly what she's after and wants and desires. There may be a woman out there who's sick of being with guys who don't care whether she comes or not and wouldn't feel pressured to come as you prioritized her orgasm, but feel invited to come and empowered to come and you would be the perfect boyfriend for. This relationship may be ending. If it does end, if you guys can't communicate around these issues, if you can't back up and rebuild and this relationship ends, err on the side of initiating conversations about what's working earlier in the relationship. Don't just assume that because she seems to be enjoying herself, don't just assume because she seems to be coming that she is enjoying herself or coming because you just got to have a relationship with someone who seemed to be enjoying herself and wasn't. That doesn't mean you have to doubt everyone who seems to be enjoying themselves. Just be solicitous. Ask for their input. Ask for feedback. And that doesn't have to be a struggle session. That doesn't have to be a depressing, awful conversation. That can be a sexy and playful conversation where you indicate that you want to have some like sexy, flirty, dirty talk, but you also want real feedback during that sexy, flirty, dirty talk. You really want to hear from them what's working. Hear from them what else they might want you to do or for you two to explore together. I wish I could get your girlfriend on the phone and depose her, not oppose her, depose her, invite her to answer some questions so I could give you better and more constructive feedback. This really is a shot in the dark. This may be the relationship ending, but it may not be the relationship ending. You might be able to come back from this, but I don't think most people in a situation like this can. Doesn't mean you can't because most people aren't all people. So if the relationship survives this crisis, where there's all sorts of things going on that she's not happy with or satisfied by, it's going to be because you guys got radically honest with each other. Having a moment of radical honesty with someone, even if that someone, you know, romantic partner, becomes your ex-someone, 
that can leave you in a better place going into your next relationship. Because in your next relationship, you're going to want to prioritize that kind of honesty. You're going to know to prioritize that kind of honesty earlier rather than later. And you're going to solicit feedback rather than waiting for it. Hello, uh, I'm a 12-year-old girl and I masturbate like a lot. And I know that boys have higher libidos than girls. But I was just wondering, how much do boys my age masturbate? Joining me by phone to help answer this question, Nick Kroll, comedian, actor, producer, and co-creator and co-star of Big Mouth, which is hands down the smartest thing that has ever been on television about (laughs) being 12 years old. Hey, Nick, how are you? I'm so good. I mean, hearing that intro specifically from you is uh, very, it's, I, I, I'm much better now hearing that intro. Thank you. Uh, well, before we get to the, you're welcome. And, and thank you for coming on my dumb podcast. Uh, but before we get to the, the question, which I think is pretty easily answered, I wanted to talk with you a little bit about, about Big Mouth, which if anyone out there isn't already familiar with it, it's about a group of friends in middle school in the suburbs of New York, Nick, Andrew, Missy, Jay, Jesse, Matthew, my personal favorite, Lola, mm-hmm. who you play, uh, as, uh-huh. as well as playing Nick. And I got to ask, you're, you're, the fourth season uh, just went out and, and I devoured it and there's two more seasons coming and I can't wait. But the first mm-hmm. question I got to ask you is how the hell do you get away with it? You know, I think we get away with it because it's animated. We have adults voicing these kids. And I think, you know, we came in at a point in Netflix where they, the lesson that they were learning was the more provocative you are, the more their viewers uh, gravitate towards it. And they have stayed true to that from the beginning and, and never really, they've, they've not shied away from the, the weirder, more explicit things that we try to talk about. And I think truthfully, the, my, our little thesis is the bigger the jokes, the bigger uh-huh. the emotion and the bigger the emotion, the bigger the jokes. The one really allows for the other. What I, what I see on the show, and then I just sit there going, if it was the 1990s, there would be congressional hearings. Jesse Helms would be on C-SPAN ranting about your show, talking vulvas, kids swapping dick pics. And season four, I got to say, I had to leave the room when Andrew gave birth at camp. And I'm not going to say to what Andrew gave birth at camp. <laughs> And I'm just always, uh-huh. <laughs> always impressed. The show is so smart. And, and a lot of the artistic choices are just so, in this way, wise and would be helpful for 12-year-olds to watch, particularly the way you've taken things like shame, anxiety, depression, even puberty, and represented those things as external forces acting on these children, as monsters. And I think that's just, just mm-hmm. a helpful mm-hmm. framing for kids to understand puberty as this thing that's happening to them not necessarily a thing that they're doing. Mm. Yes. Uh, well, thank you for that. And I think that, again, it is partly being animated allows us to create these uh, anthropomorphized versions of shame, depression, anxiety, hormones. And in the best way, the nicest thing that we do hear from people is parents or educators talking about their kids, that it gives them a, a platform or a vocabulary to start to talk about these things in a productive way that isn't as scary. So you could say like my hormone monster made me, you know, jerk off, uh, you know, yesterday when I was supposed to be doing my homework or I'm feeling the depression kitty a lot today. Or jerk off at my grandfather's wake. (laughs) Yes. Yes. That as well. So someone wrote an article early on about us saying that big mouth gives zero fucks and we have tried to stay true to that. So anytime that we have, a very where we're trying to talk about a really serious issue of, of whatever it is, 
that we are trying to make sure that if we're trying to talk about something very serious, that we are at always times balancing that with big, crazy jokes of Andrew giving birth to whatever you guys, uh, if you haven't watched it, you will <laughs> find out at the beginning of season four. But I have found very much that one hand washes the other. The more honest, truthful, and emotionally driven we are, the bigger, the crazier, the more insane jokes we can have, and vice versa. My other question that, I, that I've wanted to put to you for so long is how do you remember it, what it was like, puberty? You, your co-creators, your writers. Like, somehow, most adults can't wrap their heads around what this is like for kids, even though we all went through it. It's like we get through puberty, we get through middle school, we get through high school, and then we stuff it all down the memory hole, and then when our own kids go through it, we're we're shocked, mm -hmm. and we have no recall somehow about what it was like. Mm -hmm. But you guys, your team seems to have perfect recall. Uh, well, it's, it is, a, I think, for many, a weirdly traumatic time. So what happens to you during puberty is so foundational and formative for who you become as an adult, so that the stuff, at least in my case, the stuff that I have been talking to my therapist about in the years of writing this, so let's say a 40-year-old man, so many of the issues and things that I was dealing with as a 40-year-old, I could trace very clear lines back to when I was 12, 13 years old. And so I think I have been mining that in my therapy and then bringing it to my work and then bringing the stuff that I was talking about in my work back to therapy and talking about it there. And it was a really, I mean, it's a, it was a very interesting exchange. Um, and, and we also talked to kids. We, sp we've spoken a lot of educators, you know, we talked to Peggy Orenstein, who's wrote her book, Girls and Sex was foundational for season one of Girls Are Horny 2. Uh, she introduced us to a, a sex educator, a woman uh, named Shafia Zaloum, who is a sex educator in the Bay Area. We talked to Shafia, but then we then spoke to her students and spoke to her students who were largely in high school, but a lot, we were able to get a sense from them of the storylines that felt like we were getting right, things that they felt we were getting wrong, and things that they were like, we'd really like to see X, Y, and Z which then helped inform some storylines going forward. So we, it's a combination of, a, of a, a look back at us ourselves from what we all remembered, a look back in literally my therapy session from the <laughs> night before, and then trying to have ongoing conversations with kids and educators and people who are living in that space now to, to create something that feels both a look back at what happened to us, but also a, uh, something that feels relevant to kids right now. But are kids supposed to watch it? Is it the sort of show that would be really good for kids to watch? But the conceit is, of course, this is for adults, but you know, maybe kids are going to see it. One of my co-creators, Andrew Goldberg, has been asked that question. His kids are a little younger. And he said, I'll let my kids watch the show when they are the age of the kids in the show. Uh, because these kids are going through the same stuff that we're talking about. And while the show is incredibly graphic, there's, I'm telling you right now, there, all of the stuff happening that they're seeing in the show, they you might make your kid not allow your kid to watch it. They're going to find stuff on the internet that's just as graphic and a lot less responsibly made and thought about the messaging that's going out there. Like a beheading video is one click away. Yeah, that's what I've always said to. I sometimes get parents in my grill about you know they found out their fourteen year old was listening to my podcast and they were upset and I've assured them that they their kids are watching or listening to much worse than. Yeah this and just because yeah. some of the things we talk about here are explicit or extreme like like you said a beheading video is one click away 
Yeah. And I think that we're, again, it's, I mean, it's so much of the work you do and it's, and it's, it's to some extent what we're doing, which is, I believe that you have these conversations and normalize different elements of things, the less shame is attached to it and the less unhealthy versions of these actions take place. And I think that we are doing that. And, and then over time, really trying to build a writer's room that reflects the issues that the kids are going through, which we didn't do perfectly up top. And we've, we've tried to get better out of having, you know, as, as much equity between men and women in the room than of different points of view in, in sexuality and gender and race and trying to improve the, the makeup of that room to better reflect the, the growing spectrum of the kinds of kids and issues that each of those kids is dealing with in the show. Uh, and I, I got to say, as a, you know, I'm a huge fan. I've watched each season at least three or four times. And it's, it's almost as if as the kids have matured, the show itself has matured and it's felt very mm-hmm. organic. Like Matthew's the gay character and, you know, at mm-hmm. first he's, he's very sassy and he's witty and he's funny and he's cutting. And he was sort of like the gay reference and, and the gay gesture, but he's become a fully realized, insecure, gay, adolescent human being as mm-hmm. the show has progressed. And I, just as a gay kid, you know, the, mm-hmm. the gay kid I used to be, have really loved to watch it. And I've seen that with the other characters too. So yeah, what you're saying tracks, but conveniently, and I think artistically for your show, the growth and maturity, as the show has matured, the characters matured and it's all making a kind of sense. And it's just beautiful. I, I had one more question before we get to this question from a 12 year old mm-hmm. who listens to my show. They're out there. Um, mm-hmm. Nick Birch, basically one of the two leads you play, uh, Nick Birch. He has mm-hmm. parents and I've, I've talked a lot about this kind of parent. Like, it's terrible to have parents who will never talk to you about sex. It's also, mm-hmm. I think, equally tormenting to have parents who will never shut up about sex. The parents who are too comfortable talking with their kids about sex and their kids' friends about sex. We always called them when I was younger. We called those the nudist parents, whether your parents were naked uh-huh. or not, if you had the uh-huh. nudist parents. And they made you feel uncomfortable. And, and where is that sweet spot for parents where you're not Diane and Elliot who make you uncomfortable because they will talk with you about sex and you're not uh, Bill and Judy Savage, my parents who wouldn't talk to you about sex. Right. Well, I mean, I personally am someone who's, I believe very much in sort of the golden mean and, and in moderation and figuring out when you're talking, when you're not talking to your kids about sex or when you are talking to your kids about sex constantly, I think the question to ask is who is this serving? Are you trying? Yes. If you're not talking about your kids about sex, you're, you're doing a disservice to these kids because there's, they're, they're having to learn these things on their own and they're, they're going to have, they're going to go about it in ways that might not ultimately be the healthiest version of it for them. Or you're talking about it so much to show how, you know, down or cool you are that it, it, it causes them to sort of reject it. The nudist parents per se. And I think it's a question of if you're the one who's talking constantly about it, are you doing that because you think your kid needs to hear about this or are you doing this because you want to feel like you are the parent who's so cool and opening all these doors for them? So I guess it's just constantly asking, who is this for? You know, like who, who are you really serving here? And hopefully you can find somewhere in between where you're letting demystifying a lot of this, but not talking about it so much that your kid feels weird or, or like they're not, their needs aren't being met, which is sometimes, I need less, you know? 
All right, let's circle back to this question. And I'll remind everybody what the question was because it's been a little while because I really just want to talk with you about Big Mouth. 12-year-old girl, 12-year-old listener of the Savage Lovecast, likes to masturbate. She knows boys have higher libido than girls and was wondering how much boys masturbate at 12. Well, my answer would be there is no monolith. I wasn't masturbating at all at 12. I hadn't hit puberty. I was playing with my with my little guy, and but I wasn't masturbating. And I don't know, and you would know better than me, whether boys do have a higher libido at that point. Because I think what I've learned from my show and talking to our writers and talking to lots of people is that there were plenty of girls who were masturbating a lot and who were obsessed with masturbating in a way that some boys weren't. So I think for me, there is no marker of how much is too much or whether boys masturbate more or whether she's keeping up with the boys. I think it's like, what feels good to you? And is it dominating your life? And, and you know, like, so I would say, if it feels good and you, you're enjoying it, then what a blessing that you get to masturbate. But I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think there are certain boys who are masturbating a ton it's weird because boys masturbating is sort of affirmed and expected and, and it's sort yeah. of, it's acknowledged as a thing that boys do, which I think makes some boys feel more comfortable with themselves and with the fact that they masturbate and therefore then more likely to masturbate. It becomes self-reinforcing. Mm. Also, I've, I've always thought there's a physiological thing. Like <laughs> I remember my first orgasm when I ejaculated and I was like, oh, okay, mm-hmm. I have a, I have a marker to hit. And yeah. a lot of young girls who masturbate or, or, or pleasure themselves, they don't have that same sort of visual payoff finale. representation. Yeah. And, and yeah, they don't have the finale. They also don't have a refractory period like, like, like boys do. Of course, a teenage boy has like an 11-second refractory period. Yeah. And so I, I somehow think that you know when you make generalizations, and I'd say this to the, the caller, the 12-year-old, you make generalizations about 3.5 billion males and 3.5 billion females, there'll be hundreds of millions of exceptions. As a 12-year-old girl, you're obviously an exception if you're listening to the podcast and you're calling my show. Yeah. But I think it's broadly and generally true that boys may masturbate more because of the cultural affirmation, but also yeah. because their dicks let them know when they're done. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think that in, in, in talking, again, talking to women about their experiences, so many of them were not aware that what they were doing was masturbating. They were just sort of humping the corner of a couch or had a glow worm or mm-hmm. were doing whatever and, and weren't aware of what they were doing or they were aware of it and they were somehow ashamed of it because I do agree our culture has sort of given the A-OK to boys to masturbate, um, that it's just like boys, literally boys will be boys. And for girls, it's been a different thing. There's just so much more mystery shrouding the vagina and the, the, whether it's your period or orgasms that, or hair, all the things that like, for whatever reason, girls are told that their vaginas are, are something to not be celebrating in the way that we've culturally told boys to celebrate their penises. And so I think you're right. And I do think that there is a difference also in one can masturbate and not have an orgasm and have a wonderful experience, or one can have constant orgasms and, be not not actually experiencing a tremendous amount of pure pleasure. So like all of sexuality that I'm finding over time is there's a great spectrum inside of it. And if what you're doing is enjoyable to you and safe and not harming others and not harming yourself, then you do you. Have at. Literally. Literally. I've I've spoken to several, you know, I I have female friends. I've talked to tons of my 
uh, friends who are women, and a couple of them had made this observation a few times that the very first person who slut shamed them was themselves themselves. Mm. And mm-hmm. the culture really does get inside the heads of young women and girls to tell them that they're not supposed to be the ones who are interested in sex. That's a boy thing. Mm-hmm. And if they're too mm-hmm. interested in sex or they're masturbating, there's something wrong with them. And it's actually wonderful to be young and masturbate. Like little boys arrive at partnered sex experts on how to get off because they've been getting themselves off forever when they arrive mm-hmm. at partnered sex. Too many young women arrive at partnered sex never having gotten themselves off because they don't masturbate and then they mm-hmm. expect this inept boy uh, if it's an opposite sex first experience to do what they don't know how to do and have never done for themselves and it really yeah. helps to arrive at partner sex knowing what turns you on knowing what your orgasmic sort of revving up is where the plateaus are and when that climax point is approaching and so to the caller i would say and i hope her parents aren't going to sue me for saying you're setting yourself up for good experiences yes. when you arrive at partnered sex in some year's time. Absolutely. And it is so much about like, Hey, I like this. Like there is a responsibility on all the people involved in a sexual encounter to be like, I be able to eventually figure out how to communicate what it is. What do I like? And I'm going to tell you what I like so that you can give that to me. And that is a hard thing for a lot of people, young and old to come to literally and figuratively but ultimately will will benefit you. Can I ask you to stick around for a couple of more calls that have nothing yeah. to do with Big Mouth that are just like my usual calls? I'd be offended if you didn't. Hi, Dan. I'm actually uh, calling about your last week's episode about the gentleman who uh, was blocked after dating somebody for six months. I had a very similar situation where I was ghosted after a two-year relationship, actually living with the person and literally broken up out of the blue in less than five minutes. And uh, the advice is always to move on. And that's great advice. But the and, uh, enclosure is obviously something that I'm going to have to come through myself. But I mean, where's the accountability? I mean, that comes along with something like this. I mean, uh, you know, you know, we're splitting up friends and there's a narrative that's obviously going around because, you know, I'm not just getting ghosted by my, my ex-partner. I'm getting ghosted by, you know, all of the, the, the mutual friends, except for, you know, the ones that I brought to the table. I just don't understand how ghosting is becoming so prevalent and what society is doing to try and stop this. So, Nick, I guess public executions for ghosters? That kind of accountability? <laughs> I listen to his call and and I completely empathize with him. I have a lot of compassion to be dating someone for two years and then have that ghosted and have those friends ghosted. But I'm like, it's never it's never quite that simple. How do you end a two-year relationship and then not communicate with that person? Like, I'm always like, I need more information. I need a little more about what's going on here. Like I've broken up with people and maybe those friends that that person's friends didn't, we didn't stay super close, but they didn't like ghost me and completely turn on me unless I, I just, I want more information. Dan. Yeah. The, 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 the place where my head goes to is if all of their friends want nothing to do with you anymore, either and this person after two years disappeared on you, was there grounds? Was there cause? You know, yeah. was it not a physically abusive relationship, but was it emotionally abusive or coercive in such a way where this person felt they just had to cut you off? And do you need to, as a part of your getting to closure, scrutinize your own behavior and actions here? 
And if you find yourself guiltless, if you talk to a therapist and you really unpack it and you didn't do anything wrong, okay, well, you dated somebody shitty whose friends coincidentally are also shitty as well. Yes. And also, this is not to diminish what this person did to you, but like if you dated for someone for two years who then ghosts you truly without cause, I think it's also time to take a look at who, who you chose and what does that say about you? If you're, you know what I mean? Like that, if, if you are blameless inside of this, how, what made you stay with someone who could incredibly coldly cut you off two years later? And didn't they do you a favor then? Like if this is a kind yeah. of person who's capable of this kind of cruelty yeah. and they exited your yeah. life after two years instead of 20, great. They did you a favor. I absolutely. And I think that I, I agree. And I think that, that sometimes people cut you off I've been broken up with and, and not ghosted, but really was, there was not much of a conversation. I was like, this relationship's over. And I, of course, was heartbroken at the time, but ultimately was grateful that one, that person had the foresight to be like, we're not going the distance. I'm ending this relationship, but also that they made a firm stance on it, that there wasn't that gray area that so many relationships end up in where one person's trying to break up with the other person, but doesn't want to be too mean so they drag it out and which can be, I think, ultimately more painful than a relationship that ends abruptly. All of that said, I do think that ghosting in, in whether it's in a relationship or in a friendship or in a business association, like I think it's wrong. It's bad form. And ultimately it's painful for both people involved because most of the people who are ghosting don't cut someone off and then feel good about themselves. Like they're ultimately, they're usually nagged by this feeling of like, I really should get back to them and, and I'm not. And then that becomes very painful for them as well. So it's like, just handle your business. Like if you want to break up with someone, handle your business, talk to them. You don't have to just like completely vanish from their life. You want the other person deserves some finality and also you'll be done with it. You won't have that hanging, looming little blue dot on a text or an unread email that you haven't responded to and just be done with it and move on. And karma's a bitch and we'll get back to you. You ghost somebody and the odds that you will be seated next to that person on an eight hour flight, I think are really high (laughs) in the end. Um, One more call. Hey, Dan, I'm a 30 something straight woman living in the South. My husband and I met on casual encounters on Craigslist back in the days before Tinder. Back then, there was a lot of stigma about casual encounters. We did not, in the beginning, tell anybody that that's where we met. I think it was a combination of not knowing that this was going to be the person that I was going to spend the rest of my life with, and it just being easier to make up a story about how we met at a bar, which seemed a lot more socially acceptable at the time. However, we are now reaching 10 years of being together, and there is this strange feeling of having your story be based on somewhat of an untruth. No one in our lives knows that we met on Casual Encounters. They all believe we met at a bar. And I'm curious what your thoughts are about telling people the truth after this long, whether it's one of those little white lies that's better off being left untruth, or whether it's better to have your truth come out and, you know, have the consequences of your family knowing that you've been lying to them for 10 years over something that isn't really that big of a deal, especially interesting now that uh, so many people around us have met online their future partners and it's being a lot less stigmatized 
then. It was back before the ages of Tinder. So this question made me wonder how you meet people, how people on television meet people. Everybody's doing it on apps and online mm-hmm. these days, particularly during COVID. But is that possible for people who have who are on TV? Well, famous. I am. Uh, I am a testament to that. I, I met my wife on a app. It's an app that is was specifically for people who, you know, in my case, were are public personalities, famous on different levels and ways. So it felt safe for me that I could be on there and not worry about getting screen grabbed or or whatever, you know, people are worried about. It felt safe enough for me. And it allowed me to meet someone who I never would have met in my day to day life because she she existed outside of my circles. And uh, we met on the app and got to know each other over three, four months of, you know, some casual texting and stuff. And then met and went on a date and then slowly started dating and now got married and have a child together. But does anybody know? Have you guys ever told anybody this? You know, it, at first it was, it felt sort of awkward. And then at first, oh, she really? was like, it's so, well, if she was like, it feels so unromantic, you know, so everyone's story, everyone's obsessed with their story. Like, how right. did they meet? What's your, you know, your story? And she's like, it's just not very romantic that we met on an app. And I disagree. And I would say the same for the casual encounters. Like, there's something so romantic about two people who would not have met in real life being connected on an app or, you know, Craigslist. And, and what was romantic together. about the, the, the most common ways people used to meet? Through friends at work or being introduced by family. What's romantic about that? I think Nothing. The, the, almost the sort of existential dread randomness of like reaching out into the void and finding this person that you never would have encountered otherwise. I know people who've fallen in love with people on the other side of the world that before the dating apps and personals websites came on, they never would have found but are definitely the person they, they need to be with. And it makes you, makes me sad for all the people who didn't have this option, didn't have Craigslist casual encounters, didn't have Tinder, didn't have whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's, I think it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And I, you know, I was in a place in my life where I was, again, I guess also the, the, it it kind of getting back to your original question was like being someone who was well known. It was, it, it was somewhat tricky dating, like meeting someone at a bar, trying to understand why they're dating you or what, or, and also to be, totally frank it was becoming dating as culture has changed and like stuff like me too and all the issues surrounding it so much of it good it still was tricky to to be vulnerable with and to be and to to figure out like making sure that everybody was on the same page about what we wanted to do what we wanted to do together how we were going to do it and times have changed and in a, and in a great way but it made me feel more vulnerable and slightly more difficult to be vulnerable with someone than being on an app and getting to know somebody and then going on a date. By the time we went on that first date, we'd had multiple conversations, you know, different than casual encounters. And the takeaway for the caller here is if Dick Kroll can be out about having met his wife on a dating app, I think you can be out about having met your partner on Craigslist Casual Encounters, you were doing it before everybody was doing it. You were into that yeah, before I mean, they got famous. You, sh- you have bragging yeah, rights. You should, nothing to be ashamed totally. of. I remember back, this is like, I think probably when I started listening to you and, and reading your stuff, but early 2000s in New York and the Casual Encounters was always a very fun, entertaining place to check out, you know, but a lot of it was like 
420 skiing tonight. Anybody want to ski today during the day? It was a very different vibe. But also, I don't know. I think everybody's story is romantic, and they've clearly proven the test of time. They've been together for 10 years. Who cares how you met? I think she's self-conscious about the fact that they met. Like, casual encounters then, you met Sleazy. And the Mm -hmm. thing that so many people have a problem with about meeting Sleazy is lots of couples met Sleazy, but they have a friend and family's version of how they met. And if you aren't like the best friend, you don't know the real, you know, couple, you know, if your grandparents met at an orgy, (laughs) they didn't tell their kids. They didn't tell you, but I promise you orgies weren't invented five years ago. There were people at orgies 70 years ago. And it's not only possible your grandparents met at an orgy, but that your parent was conceived at one, but you don't know that story. Like people who met cute, tell the story and people who met sleazy don't. And then it makes everyone think that all good relationships have met cute starts when so many great relationships met sleazy. We just don't know about it. Totally. And you guys met sleazy and you should brag about it. Can I ask you one last question about big mouth before I let you go? Yes, of course. Of course. So the, the kids in big mouth continue to, age they're growing up Mm -hmm. you have two Mm -hmm. more seasons coming where do you see the show ending graduating from high school or can it go on longer than that are we going to see these kids in college one day i don't know i think honestly it it's a weird because it's it's most animated shows you know we have a joke i think at the beginning of season four that like bart simpson is still in fourth grade 30 years later you know the beauty of our show is it was a show it's a show about puberty and change and so the Mm -hmm. kids need to keep changing and evolving so we are slowly progressing them through seventh and eighth grade i honestly think it will depend on whether there's we still we will continue to have intriguing stories to tell how far will we go where we have you know, what, what, what are the stories that we want to tell that will call for new stuff? Because part of me wants to see where these kids are when they're 20. And part of yeah. me thinks what's so genius about the show is that that moment, you know, 11, 12, 13, 14, is so surreal. And you have no power and no control. And it just feels like you keep getting hit by meteors. And yeah. as you get older, you know, as you go into college or you get a little older, I think it becomes less surreal, less intensely felt. And what I think the show reflects with you know anxiety mosquitoes and shame wizards is the, surra- the how surreal it all is that moment yeah. and so yes can the the surreality be sustained over the long term or is it particular to 12 13 it's a fair question it's a i mean i think you're absolutely right it's very specific because these are new things that are coming at us at 12 13 14 it's it's very primed for it but i will say personally like I didn't really hit puberty until high school. So all of my crazy hormonal outbursts and like that really hit me much more freshman and sophomore year of high school than it did in seventh, eighth grade. Well, I hope the show goes on forever because I love it. Thank you. Well, what we are going to do for sure is we have a spinoff show called Human Resources, which is taking place in the world of the monsters. It's like a workplace comedy about the hormone monsters, the shame wizards, the depression kitties, the ambition gremlin, uh, all these other characters in a world we're populating where it's really about them. And then they come down to earth to deal with other elements of life, not just puberty like Big Mouth, but in this case, you know, birth and death and dementia and um, oh divorce. God. And, and when so, do we get to see that? That's, and oh, tell me there's more Maya Rudolph. I can't get enough Maya Rudolph. I, there's always going to be Maya Rudolph. But this once we'll, we'll be announcing everything soon. I don't know when we're announcing it, but 
seasons five of Big Mouth will come out th- this fall, and then season one of Human Resources, which we we finished a few months ago, the you know the writing and initial voicing, that will come out sometime next year. So even though it won't be the kids from Big Mouth, it'll be continue to sort of discuss all these the forces, emotions, and elements of life that that either govern us or whatever. It's called human resources. So you, I hope will, I hope you will enjoy that. As I, well. I, I'm sure I will. I, I can't wait to see it. It sounds genius. Nick Kroll, comedian, actor, producer, co-creator, co-star of Big Mouth Now in season four on Netflix. There are two more seasons promised to us and coming our way. And, and it's, it's genius. The whole show is genius. And I, and I'm so thrilled I got to, to talk with you about it. Thank you so much. Dan, I'm a big fan. Thanks. It's a real pleasure to be here with you. Hi, Dan. My name is uh, Steve, and I'm in Phoenix. And I have a question about the word butthurt. I've been t- I used this recently, and I've always considered myself a supporter of LGBTQ rights. And uh, But I used it recently just kind of an offhand way, and someone accused me of using um, a slur, uh, a gay slur, or homophobic slur, to be more precise. I was wondering what you think about that, and, and if it's if you consider it to be a slur, I guess I'm just interested in your opinion. It is a truth universally acknowledged that only gay men have butts and only gay men can feel physical pain. So, of course, butthurt is an anti-gay slur. I think it's fine. I think you can say butthurt. Everybody has butts. Everybody's butts have nerve endings. Anal sex, if it's a reference to penetrative sex and being sore afterwards, not just gay men have penetrative sex. So I'm fine with it. This individual gay man is fine with it. If you and I were friends and you want to describe me as butthurt after we had an argument, I wouldn't object. I wouldn't feel like you'd used an anti-gay slur. In fact, I've long in my innocence assumed that butthurt was kind of a reference to having your ass kicked or getting your ass spanked. It was about that kind of hurt. But of course, now I've done a little reading. I did a little Googling, talked to the tech savvy at risk youth, and I have been instructed that it is a reference to the kind of hurt that a person experiences when they get their ass fucked. Maybe my frame of reference around ass fucking is different because ass fucking that I'm involved with typically involves pleasure for both parties, the ass fucker and the ass fucky. And the soreness or awareness afterwards that your ass has been fucked is kind of a lovely little souvenir of the ass fucking, not anything punishing or painful. And so, yeah, I guess my personal experience with uh, getting butt fucked prevented me from making the leap to butt hurt is a reference to butt fucking. But I appear to be an outlier and an anomaly. So you might want to be careful using butthurt in front of your gay friends who may feel that you're disparaging anal intercourse, which is ours and ours alone. But I, of course, I'm not going to tell you not to use this expression that I myself use all the time. So have at. All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read some of your tweets over the last week. Greta Berensdorf tweets, sitting in my car on a lovely spring day in a lovely suburban neighborhood, windows down, eating lunch, listening to the Savage Lovecast. Maybe the kids playing outside don't need to know the best cuckolding practices now, but it might serve them well in the future. 
You never know. Couldn't hurt. Well, maybe, hopefully, couldn't hurt. And finally, queer oddball coconut tweets. Hearing at fake Dan Savage use the phrase taking the piss in episode 752 of the Savage Lovecast. Don't know, but hearing this made me giggle a bit. Hmm. Reading your tweet made me wonder a bit if people in the piss play community object taking the piss, which means to mock someone. That expression means to mock someone. For the same reasons, buttfuckers and cocksuckers object to people using butthurt and cocksucker as insults. I imagine we'll find out in this week's calls. All right. If you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now your response calls. Hi, I'm calling in response to the OBGYN resident who was looking for feedback on how to make his female patients more comfortable. As a patient who has had multiple visits to multiple OBGYNs, I have to say the most uncomfortable experience I ever had was with a male OBGYN who refused to look me in the eye. He refused to make eye contact even when speaking to me. Just made me uncomfortable that he looked straight at my vagina and I was in this really vulnerable position, but he couldn't even look me in the eye. Just made me uncomfortable and I didn't go back to see him after that. I also recently had a pelvic ultrasound and the technician who administered it really set me at ease in many of the ways that your guest expert suggested. She let me know that at any point during the exam, if I felt uncomfortable, whether physically or emotionally, to just say the word and she would stop. And that really meant a lot to me. As a victim of sexual assault, I am pretty good at controlling my emotions, uh, but sometimes I do get triggered. And knowing that she would understand and not judge me if I had to put a stop to things, even momentarily, uh, just really helped me feel empowered in that moment when you are so vulnerable. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to one of your responses to a question on episode 752. So it was about the girl whose ex-boyfriend had stolen her vibrator. He was probably using it. Like I and at least one of my other girlfriends have had a guy that we dated take one of our vibrators and or dildos or whatever. And my girlfriend actually had a guy who didn't put it back clean. So that's how she knew he was using it. But I'm just, I'm really surprised that you didn't say that maybe that's what he was doing. Hello, Dan. Calling about episode 752, about what to say when somebody thinks someone is choosing to be gay. And I've done this before and it's worked really well, but, uh, you know, straight, usually straight dudes, straight dudes like, you know, they're choosing to be gay. And I say, oh, so you chose to be straight? And it just knocks them down. They're like, what? I'm like, yeah, you chose that, huh? So you could just up and decide tomorrow to be gay, couldn't you? And they're pretty much like, no, I can't. I'm like, well, that's all it's like. So that's all. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for me or a comment about this week's show? There are two ways to get them to us. You can call us at 206-302-2064, or you can use the voice memo app on your phone to record your question or comment, and then email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. Tickets go on sale on Wednesday, March 31st for another Hump's Greatest Hits, this time Volume 3, a whole new collection of some of our favorite dirty short films from over the last 16 years of Hump. Go to humpfilmfest.com to watch the trailer and grab your tickets now. And if you love Hump and you love weed, you might want to check out Hump's sister film festival, Spliff, the film fest made by stoners for stoners. 
Go to splitfilmfest.com to watch a trailer and learn more. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Nick Kroll on Twitter at Nick Kroll. You can also find him under that same handle on TikTok and Instagram. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We'll be back at you next week in an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.